when you are in person with somebody face to face, it's a lot harder to say those mean, cruel things. When you're online, you're completely shielded from it. People aren't even people. They're just texts on a screen. Online, those signals aren't being sent. It's just like attack, 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 attack. Welcome to Respect, Relate, Connect, the official podcast for Living Room Conversations, a nonprofit organization focused on building understanding and bringing people together through guided conversations since 2010. Welcome to this month's episode of Respect, Relate, Connect, the official podcast for Living Room Conversations. I am Stuart Fletcher, social media manager for Living Room Conversations and your host today. I have two guests with me, Dallin Hawkins and Candy Davis, and we're going to talk about the guide, Relationships Over Politics, Connecting with Friends and Family. As we start this new election year and opinions become more and more entrenched, it's important to talk about and learn how to put people first and the issues second. So this guide is going to be exploring exactly that topic with your friends and your family. It can be found at livingroomconversations.org. We, as an organization, are a nonprofit run primarily through donations. And we do that so that our resources can be free to download and accessible for everyone and anyone across the country. And we invite you, the listener, to go to our website now to go find that guide and to follow along with us as we go through. But uh, enough from me now, uh, we're going to hear from our guests. So to start off, we're going to do an introductory round, and then we'll have several different conversational rounds after that. Each of us will answer these three questions. Your name, where you live or where you're from, and what you hope to get out of this conversation. So I'll go first. And then Candy will go second and then down. And that will kind of be our rotation for the whole conversation today. So like I said, my name is Stuart Fletcher. I go to Brigham Young University here in Provo, Utah. And my hope in this conversation is to gain some real tools. Hopefully you guys can help me with that. Tools of how to get out of those moments where you feel like you're, you're heading into conflict with someone you really care about. And you may not know how to pull the brakes. And hopefully we can we can discuss that further. Hi, Stuart. This um, I'm Candy Davis. I grew up in Washington State and in Colorado. I live in Mesa, Arizona right now. I have um, a family. I've got five daughters um, who are mostly grown. Um, what I am hoping to get out of the conversation is figuring out how to um, how to have a conversation about something that I feel strongly about without letting my emotions kind of take over um, the conversation. Yeah. Hi, I'm Dallin Hawkins. Um, I'm also living in Provo, Utah and going to Brigham Young University. And, uh, but I was born and raised in Northern Utah. Um, I'm excited to be a part of this conversation. Um, it's not my first one that I've had, but what's uh, drawn me uh, to be a part of this conversation is trying to understand um, my community and where I fit in my community and, and how to uh, build a stronger relationship with people in my community and, and uh, how to have more effective conversations with people. Perfect. Thank you guys so much. I feel like our listeners might start getting the feeling that Utah is overrepresented in these conversations because I have lots of friends here in Utah. That's where I've lived probably the, yeah, the, at this point, the majority of my life here in Utah. And I'm, I mean, you pull from who, you know, and hopefully we can get more and more voices from across the country. I'm always willing. If you as a listener want to be part of one of these conversations, you can go to our Instagram living room convo. And you can just message us and I can try to see if I can find a way we can talk to see if you fit in. And I would love to look at that moving forward. But as we go along with this conversation, 
we're going to move down into our guide into conversation agreements. These are kind of our rules, our um, guiding principles that will help set the tone for this conversation so that no matter what we talk about, we can always have these as kind of guardrails and guideposts so we can be heading in as productive as, of a direction as possible. So I'm going to read the first one, and then Candy, if you'll read the second, and Dallin, and then we'll go in that rotation until we've read all six of them. The first one says, be curious and listen to understand. Show respect and suspend judgment. Know any common ground as well as any differences. Be authentic and welcome that from others. Be purposeful and to the point. Own and guide the conversation. Perfect. And if at any point any of us feel like somebody is going... Outside of these conversation agreements, we can literally like throw up a, a timeout signal. We can stop and we can reevaluate. But now we're going to move into round one, which is a little bit further step into getting to know each other. We know a little bit of facts about each other. And now it's our opportunity to actually dig into who we are before we dig into the conversation itself. So in round one, each participant will take one to two minutes to answer one of these questions. Here are the three that you can pick from. What are your hopes and concerns for your community and or the country? What would your best friends say about who you are and what inspires you? What sense of purpose, mission, or duty guides you in your life? So I can go first. Having had several of these living room conversations, sometimes it's hard to know exactly how to answer these because you feel like you you can answer them in a kind of a rote way. So I'm trying to make sure that every time it's a meaningful answer. I'm going to look at the first question. What are your hopes and concerns for your community and or the country? Uh, so many concerns, but also a lot of hopes. I would say my biggest concern with the country at large, with the United States at large, is that we use identity almost as a weapon against each other. That sometimes you can project someone an identity or a stereotype on somebody else and force them to live in that box. And sometimes you can use it even for yourself. You can just decide one day that this is my identity across the board and you become inflexible and by doing that, we're, we're creating a lot of division. But my hope is that through work like living room conversations, through people just willing to put empathy and understanding first, that we can move beyond that and start to just see each other as nuanced and interesting and layered people like you do with people that you know in your day-to-day -day life. I like that. Um, okay, I'll, I guess I'll go next, and I'm going to choose what sense of purpose, mission, or duty guides you in your life. And for me, <clears throat> I mean, I'm I'm a mom, so that's kind of the place I come from. Um, in in my perspective, as I look at my um, sense of purpose and mission, it really is to um, raise my children the best way I can to help them be strong members of their community and to be engaged in the world around them. I think that's really important. And also just to help them be good people and to be kind of, um, I don't know, a, a guide when they want. I, they're adults. Now my youngest is 20. And so for me, I, I want to be able to be a guide uh, without being, without overstepping um, those bounds. And I think that's sometimes uh, a challenge for a parent. Uh, you feel like you, you know, see maybe into the future a little bit more than, than you feel like your kids do and, and you want to help more than they want your help. Uh, but I also, what I'm also learning from my kids is that they, they are growing up in a different environment than I grew up in. And so what they see um, and what they experience in their life is they can inform me kind of about what's going on, you know, in the world that they're living in. It's a very different place. Um, so I want, you know, I guess my, what guides me in my life is that 
trying to find that balance um, with my children, um, how I can learn from them, how they can learn from me, how do I don't overstep those those boundaries that they have. That's great. I can tell you're a great mom. Um, oh, that's nice. <laughs> yes. I think uh, the question I would answer is, uh, what are your hopes and concerns for your community um, and or the country? I think first and foremost, something I've noticed just even in my 25 years of life and in talking to others that have lived longer than I have, something that's changed a lot is that people feel less healthy and less safe. And that's something that I really hope that we can restore um, in our community is people being healthier physically, mentally, emotionally, um, and people feeling more safe in their communities. Um, physically safe, I mean, just recently, like, I've talked to people who don't even feel safe leaving a backpack in their car because they're worried it'll be stolen or um, they're worried walking home alone, um, even late at night, not even just girls, but guys too, like, um, just feeling safe in our communities is so, so important that we can even just live the basic moments of our life without feeling like we're in danger. And then also feeling healthy and fulfilled. Um, my hope for my community in the country would be that we would return to our values and our roots. Um, and we would see what in the past has made us healthy and safe and that we could identify that and more clearly return to it. Thank you. I, I love both of those answers. One of the reasons why we do that first round is so that everything that we can talk about after this is contextualized by knowing who that person is, at least a sliver, what that person values, what drives them. So I really appreciate you guys being open and vulnerable with me and with the listeners today. We're gonna go on to round two. And before we start this round, can I get one of you to volunteer to read the paragraph right at the top of the page underneath the picture of the, the dinner table? I'd be happy to. Um, is it start with, is it possible? Mm -hmm. Is it possible to use living room conversations with our family and close friends? It is ultimately challenging because family are more likely to break, quote, hosting guest social norms. Um, the emotional stakes are higher and conversations are colored by long, deeply personal histories. And it can feel easier to, quote, take the gloves off and fight dirty, unconstrained by the politeness usually offered to acquaintances. How might we hold the, the tension of our differences while working to repair connection and not further deepen division within our circle of family and friends? Thank you so much. And I'm going to read this additional little paragraph here that says, all sorts of people tell us they want to use the skills they practice in living room conversations to help restore connection with friends and family. So let's use a living room conversation to talk about just that. This living room conversation will help us listen and learn about where we have different opinions along with shared ideas about how to best navigate time with family and friends who may not share our view of the world. I think this is a, it's a very, very common problem that lots of people are having and a very common subject I see come up. I don't know about you guys. I don't know how much you're online, but like heading into Thanksgiving, I saw post after post, video after video about like, well, I'm worried to go home to talk to that one uncle or like, I don't want to talk to that one cousin or whatever. And it really kind of made me sad because I was so excited to go home because I get to be with my family. We get to do all these fun, dumb things. And it was like, it's weird to see how many people actually dread that experience. So that's really what we're going to be talking about today in round two. Each of us is going to get two minutes to answer any of these following questions you want. But we, I want to emphasize that that like those first two minutes is just kind of your opening. You don't have to say every thought that you're having. Just a, a, a quick answer to one of these questions coming up. And then after each of us gets a moment to kind of have the spotlight, we're going to open it up and we can be more free form. We can ask questions. We can comment directly back to something that somebody else has said. So I'm going to read these questions out. And then we're going to go to that order of me and then Candy, then Dallin. 
What are your early memories of talking politics with your family or friends? What things went well? Was there anything difficult? What assumptions do you think those close to you may be making about your political identity? What assumptions do you make about friends or family's political identities? What do you wish or hope could happen in conversations with your friends and family about meaningful differences between you? Are there any past successes that you might build upon? How could you prepare yourself to listen with genuine curiosity to your friends and family? When does love supersede politics and when does it perhaps not? I think the one that jumps out to me the most is when, what assumptions do you think those close to you may be making about your political identity? This is something that I don't know, I wouldn't say I've struggled with recently, but I definitely had throughout my life. I grew up here in Utah for the most part, but then around the beginning of my high school, I moved all the way across the country to Washington, D.C., and that is a major culture shock. Even though it's the same country, we're speaking the same language, it could be a whole different planet. I was so just like surprised by how different, not just the people in the community, but like how they treated each other, what the world looked like, the worldviews all around me. And all of my friends in Washington, D.C. all assumed that I was very hardcore right wing that I was very conservative and sometimes that like that I was like a country bumpkin and that I didn't know anything. And it was weird to me because I was like, well, you guys have never even asked me about any of these beliefs. You've just projected this idea of what you think Utah is onto me. And it was funny to experience the reverse when I moved back from Maryland to here in Utah and people did the exact same thing, but flipped where they just assumed that I was like this kind of East coast elitist. And that I grew up not knowing like the different values and the different communities out here. And that I, I had different priorities than they do. And I saw the world in a different way. And so I've definitely had people assume on both directions, my political identity. And the irony is that I am very moderate. And so like they were both wrong in their own assumptions in different ways. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. And I have a similar, well, maybe not that similar, but I, I have experienced within my own family um, very different political um, pers perspectives. Um, so I am going to take the question, what are your early memories of talking politics with family or friends? <clears throat> what things went well and was anything difficult? So growing up, our family is very conservative. We grew up in Washington and Colorado, but because we were members of the Mormon Church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we were very conservative. And uh, and that was fine. There were seven kids. We all pretty much thought the same. It was very cohesive. And, and there's some comfort in that, right? Um, that cohesion and feeling like <clears throat> you're surrounded with people that Think and feel the same way you do. There's a comfort level there. Uh, so when we moved to Colorado, I was 10 and I um, was raised most of most of my life there. I got married when I was 20 and, and my husband and I moved to the East Coast. My family then moved to Utah. And moving from Colorado to Utah was really interesting for my little brothers because they did not... Um, I think they, they found the friends around them in Utah much more conservative in a lot of ways than they wanted to be. They wanted to be not lumped in with that type of conservatism. And maybe that's because, you know, they did most of their growing up in Colorado. I don't know. But um, they became much more liberal in Utah. And as I was in Massachusetts, pretty much, you know, thinking the same way I'd always thought, um, which wasn't like super hard conservative, more of a moderate conservatism. Um, they, they 
were much more liberal. And when we came back together as a family a few years later, and they were in college, and one of them was um, engaged, uh, so they were quite a bit older. And as we sat down to talk about, you know, just how everyone was doing in life and everything, these things started coming up. You know, the political stuff started coming up. And I remember being very distraught that my little brother, who I felt like was very smart and, you know, had a had a good understanding of the world, um, that what he was saying to me, these very liberal philosophies, um, didn't didn't fit with what um I thought a smart person should think. <laughs> and and we had, you know, we had a conversation that was really hard. And he was upset that I felt like he didn't understand the world as well as I did at that point. And we talked about, you know, taxes and how when he started making his own money, he'd realize, you know, how great it was to be fiscally conservative and, you know, all of those kind of things. It was, it was a tough conversation because I think he felt belittled by the fact that I did not, um, that I wasn't more curious or understanding about where he was coming from. And I was upset by the fact that we were no longer in that comfortable place where we could both um, think the same thing. Yeah, the question that stuck out to me was, uh, when does love supersede politics and when does it perhaps not? I grew up uh, being told by my parents, they said, you know, we love you. Uh, but we love you enough to tell you what you need to hear and not just what is easy to be heard. Um, my mom made it clear to me that she was the only person in the world with her role. She said, you will have many friends. You will have your siblings and you will have your extended family. You'll have your wife and children someday. But nobody in this world will be your mother except me. And she said... I have that special role and that responsibility to guide you as your mother. And uh, my dad felt very similarly. And so they loved me, but they also realized that they served that critical purpose in my life to help correct and guide me as I grew up. My siblings also saw that, that they weren't just friends. They weren't just people I met in classes. Um, they were people that we're going to that that not only have been there my whole life because I'm the youngest, but they've been there my whole life. They've seen me through every stage of life that I've been in, and they probably will see almost every stage I'll ever go through. They're the only ones that will really know me through every time of my life. And so they serve a special purpose. I think love um supersedes politics when you have that special role that mantle or responsibility in someone's life um as a sibling as a parent um and honestly even as a friend i've i've had friends tell me the hard truths and uh they're willing to put aside what is easy to say and they're able to say what i need to hear and so I think that that is when love is most important is when we see our role in someone's life. Yeah, well, that's definitely, that resonates with me for sure. Is there something that you wanted to respond back to directly, Dallin? Um, no, just, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I can see that would be so difficult. And just a thought I had while you were telling your story was um, just how funny it is that we see things so black and white. So liberal and conservative and heaven forbid there was any nuance there you know to live in utah and oh well it's a conservative place so i'm either going to be conservative or i'm going to go against the grain and be liberal it's like <laughs> it's just so much more complicated that than that isn't it yeah i like how you say it's more complicated than that I think that's really true. But we do, I think we get driven by those divisions because, and this was back in the 90s when we were having that conversation. It's even worse of a divide now than it was then. <clears throat> but I think because of those divisions and because we grew up in a world that was very, you know, our parents were very black and white about, you know, if you're conservative or liberal. We definitely knew what our parents thought. 
And, and so I think you, you start, um, you start defining someone else by those very specific, you know, liberal, conservative, religious, not religious, you know, those kind of really divisive words or ideas. And, and I think part of, um, part of what my children have taught me, especially is that it is more complicated than that. And it is more nuanced than that. And it, it, that it's okay. Um, it's okay for that nuance to be there and for that complication to be there. It doesn't have to be black and white. We all see the world a different way. Like none of us see the world the same way. And, and that's a good thing. And I think it took a while for me to figure out that that was a good thing. And it's good to have conversations about politics. I think it's so funny that there's like that old axiom that the two things you don't talk about at the dinner table are religion and politics. And if you ask me, those are the two things we are struggling with the most is uh, spirituality, religion, and politics. And those are perhaps the things that we most desperately need to have healthy conversations about. It's always funny when I hear people say that, because I, I still hear it where they're like, oh, we don't talk politics or religion at the dinner table. Because I grew up in a family where that's like our primary topic of conversation number one is movies number two is religion number three is politics like that's what we talked about <laughs> and i i definitely resonated with what you were saying before candy about that there was this peace and this kind of safety and the conformity of your family when you were younger because i mean my parents have never been exactly eye to eye on their politics Just like you were saying everybody is different everybody there's a lot more nuanced but we did grow up in a very traditional, very Christian, fairly conservative household. And until I was about 10 or 11, all of my siblings all like we just agreed because we didn't we didn't know anything else. And now, because most of my siblings are adults, we have almost like every part of the political diaspora that you can imagine. And it's really interesting because. I used to find safety in the fact that we all agreed. And now I find a lot of like power and meaning in the fact that we have so much diversity, but it can be really hard because sometimes the whole world is yelling about politics. You go online, every post you see is about something and you go home and that's where you want to be like your, your safety zone. Mm-hmm. And when those conversations continue or, or even escalate when you go home, that's the that's the hard part. I don't know how we really face that. I so I have one brother, different brother than the first one I was talking about, who is probably the most um, directly opposite of me as far as what our politics are. and And I think we've probably come a little bit closer together over the years, but I remember one conversation with him, we were at home, we were talking about, I think it was like right during or right before COVID and they were talking about, you know, defunding the police. And we had very, two very different ideas of that was a good idea or not. And, and we had a very spirited conversation and he and I are probably the most non-conflict people in the entire family. Neither, neither one of us like conflict at all. And so for us to be having this conversation was kind of, scary because it's not a conversation that normally we would enjoy having, especially not with each other. And we love each other very much. Um, and I remember having that conversation and kind of having to pull back. And, and I remember getting to a certain point in the conversation where I was like, okay, I can't say anything more to upset him and I don't want to upset him and I don't want to be upset and so I think I said something like well you know we're probably just going to always disagree about this and that's okay and um and you know I mean it's not the way you want a conversation to resolve but sometimes it's the only way for a conversation to resolve I think and but I remember he, him coming up to me about 10 minutes later and just saying, hey, 
I'm so sorry. I never want to have like a conversation where we are upset with each other. Like that's not, that's not okay. I love you. And I respect, you know, your difference of opinion and, and that's great. And I'm so sorry. That was really sweet of him to apologize. Um, you know, I, it felt really good to me and I, you know, I didn't feel like he had anything to apologize for, but I appreciated that he didn't want that to define, you know, the rest of the week or he didn't want that to sit. I I have a question. I, um, I wonder what you guys would think about this. I've, I've thought about political discussions a lot lately and it's funny. I almost feel like every controversial discussion about anything is like, oh, I don't talk politics. Like it, it's seen as politics if it's controversial, um, which is funny to me um, because not everything is political. You know, I, I might have a discussion about morality and philosophy and morals and values, um, but because our world is so politicized and because our government is involved in just about every aspect of our life, it seems like you can't have a discussion about anything without it becoming political. Um, me and my wife are, you know, deeply Christian. We're also members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and it's funny, we've noticed that every discussion we have about spirituality always inevitably ends in being about politics. And every and the reverse is also true, where every political discussion we have always ends in discussing spirituality. It's just like if you discuss it long enough, it always turns one into the other. So how do we nav navigate that? And is it would it be healthy to determine what discussions are political and what discussions are more just morality and values? Hmm. That's something that me and one of my little brothers talk about fairly often is making sure you're talking at the same plane because sometimes and me, me and him lament about this because we are uh, like macro speakers. Sometimes we're talking about like, like you were saying philosophy, things broader than really we understand and these broad strokes ideas but then somebody else can be talking about the micro, this issue or this experience or this point in my life. And to me, sometimes it's important to be like, oh, to clarify, like, okay, well, I'm talking philosophically or morally or spiritually. I'm not necessarily talking practically. We can have that conversation, but that is a different conversation because now we're talking about like the ins and outs of of policy and of practice and the, and all sorts of other things. I like that. Yeah. I think that's helpful to kind of define what is the, you know, what is the, the ball of wax we're talking about? I think, I think it's helpful to, um, to see the person that you're talking to as, um, as someone who has their own experiences, right. That adds to what they're going to be saying and, and that they see the world through. And I think trying to understand, um, that that's not a wrong thing and to have a conversation with someone knowing that they, they see things through their own experience. And, and that's going to be different because we're all different, like I said before. But but knowing that going in, I think kind of helps. And like you said, Stuart, if you define, okay, we're not talking about the big stuff. We're gonna, let's just talk about how we practically apply that. And I think the other thing that really helps is um, just being curious about what the other person really thinks and is really saying. And I think, and I think asking a lot of questions instead of thinking about how you're going to rebut what that person is saying. Cause I remember that conversation with my brother, I was just like, I'm going to rebut. I know how exactly how I'm going to rebut that. You know, I wasn't really, I wasn't really trying to figure out what he was really getting at. I was just listening to like these trigger 
you know, precepts or perspectives that I was like, no, like you can't possibly think that. And it going back, I, I should have just been more curious, like asked more questions and been really interested in knowing the answers. Uh, and I think that's hard to do when you, you feel so like emotionally connected to one certain way of looking at something. It's hard to kind of pull back from that. Um, but I hope next time I have a conversation with him, I can do that. <laughs> well, and that's kind of leads into a question I wanted to ask you guys, which is the idea of like how much listening and leeway and latitude do we give people if they're not giving it back? Because that's the experience I run into a lot is I'm willing to listen. I, for the most part to most political beliefs and even things that I completely disagree with, I'll, I'll listen. But when the conversation becomes completely tyrannically dominated by one person or one ideology, and you were thinking it's a give and take, how much are we willing to just sit, listen, and ask questions without any kind of receiving of that? I just keep thinking about, I don't know if you guys have watched Ted Lasso, but there's one quote that I love in there. It's this, it's the episode where it's it's the dartboard and they're having a contest with the previous owner of the the football team and and Ted says to him, you know, what I learned about people that underestimated me is that they were never curious. Um, mm. They never asked any questions at all. And he was, you know, saying to the guy, he never asked if I, you know, went and played darts with my dad every Saturday, you know, and, and then he beat him in his own game. But I, I think about that a lot because I think, yeah, maybe, maybe to that person who's taking over the conversation, I don't know if it's possible to say, you know, is there anything that you're curious about what I think? Um, I wonder if that turns that conversation around or if you exit that conversation because you, you can't have a conversation if the other person isn't participating in a give and take, I think. It's true. I, I've, I've thought a lot and pondered over um, in the New Testament when uh, Jesus says, you know, do not cast your pearls before swine or that which is holy before the dogs. And I've always thought, oh, that is so mean to call people swine and dogs. But I don't think he was calling people swine and dogs. I think he was calling certain conversations, certain moments are would be like seeing and sharing something sacred or something very personal in that moment would be casting it before swine. But the swine is that that poor moment. And so where someone isn't reciprocating, the problem with that is. I've just learned this from my wife. She is a, a yoga teacher and a meditation and mindfulness coach. And she says, when people are in their sympathetic nervous system, they're not only not receptive, but they're very defensive and very, very, very little is, is able to get done, not only in their heart, but even in their mind, they can hardly remember anything. And they're also going to have a great negativity bias. I think there's a good chance if someone is not reciprocating that, there's a good chance they're in a defensive state. And <clears throat> it would be good to do something with them that would get them out of their sympathetic nervous system um, and just kind of create a better moment to talk about that, that thing. Hmm. I like what you said about like when you're in, I don't know the terminology because I'm I'm not as educated as your wife, but like, when you're in that mode, you're not going to be receiving anything. Like if it's like that kind of fight or flight, like if you're in this survival kind of defensive mode, it doesn't matter what people are giving you. It's, it's just, it's hitting a blank wall because you're ready to fight. I had an experience just recently where uh, a family member, an extent, like extended family member posted something just like vile and hateful on their social media. And I was like shocked because we don't agree politically, but we, I thought we agreed morally. And they po post something that to me was so blatantly hateful. 
And I was going to respond. And I, in fact, I wrote out, I don't know how many times you guys have done this. You write out this whole long response. And then like in the moment, I'm like, this isn't going to do any good. This isn't going to do anything except for give me stress and make them mad at me and like create this whole back and forth. And so I just didn't say anything. In fact, what I did was like muted them on social media. But that's like that. We can't live in this world where we just like mute people, especially our close friends, our close family members. Like this is a cousin I almost never see. But if it was like my brother or if it was like my mom, you you can't mute those people. What? So what do you do? That's hard because I think, you know, I think we've all been in that situation where we really want to say something. Um, but definitely on social media and in the comment section, nothing good ever happens. Right. I mean, people just don't, that's not when they're listening and that's when they're spewing, and and maybe this goes back to kind of what you were saying down about wanting to feel safe in the world again. I think part of the reason we don't feel safe is because we see, you know, the comment section. <laughs> and it is, it's a really angry place. It's a scary place, honestly. And I think before that, I mean, obviously lived before any of that happened. People might have thought those things, but those things weren't spoken to anybody. And a lot of times those thoughts are transitory, right? You can think something angry in a moment when you're angry and, and then in, an, in another time and place, those feelings are different and they've changed. But because we put them in the comment section where they live, they take on a life of their own. Um, and they, so that, I think that is scary. And I have no idea what the answer to that is, except for, you know, not to respond at all. I think muting someone though is hard too, right? Because, because you're right. You don't want to shut down a relationship. But again, I think it's different online than it is in person. I, I really do. I want to know what you guys think about that because I live in a different generation how is online different than in person for you, for you guys? Because for me, there's a definite, I mean, I kind of almost like I ignore a lot of that because I'm like, well, that's not real. You know, I've, I've thought a lot about social media too and, <clears throat> and being online. And you know what I've realized is your online atmosphere is what you make it. I know people who hate social media and I love to ask them why, because it's no surprise when I find out, well, I was following these accounts and I'm like, all right, I'm going to stop you there. I mean, that's why you were hating social media, because you were in inflammatory places. Um, I know because I've tried to structure my online presence to be in very anti-inflammatory uh, places, sites that are promoting health and happiness and safety, all the things I'm striving for in my community, um, places that uh, sites and pages with like-minded people. And you know what I'm realizing is it really is just what you make it. You can make your social media presence a great, great, healthy, happy place, just like you can make your physical presence in the real world a healthy, happy place. I mean, if you put yourself on skid row in California, you know, that's going to be the worst, most unhealthy, scary place you will fear for your life. But if you put yourself in uh, Jackson, Wyoming, I mean, you're going to feel great and you're going to smell the fresh air. So just like we can put ourselves in safe physical places, we can create a safe online presence as well. A little bit of a response, but not quite a rebuttal to what down was saying, because I really do agree. I use my online presence primarily for humor. And then after that, for more uplifting things, the kinds of people I follow, the kinds of things I interact with. But I read an, an interesting book a while back. The book is called On Killing. It's actually, it's a very dark book about the psychology of what it takes to be a killer. 
and it's written by this army sergeant who has served like in every special forces and he is a very interesting man who now trains soldiers and he talked about how every instinct in the human brain is designed to not want to hurt somebody else obviously there are people who are sick and who have problems literally in their brain that change that but human beings are designed to have this preservation for themselves and for each other and it takes a lot of conditioning to trick a soldier or a person into being a killer but he says the number one easiest way to do it is to create distance like like if you dehumanize other people way easier but especially he said especially in the kind of the drone strike era where we're living where you can literally not have just physical distance but emotional and mental distance where you don't have to see a person you can literally just like plug in coordinates and do it it's easy he says that you you don't even have really have to train or condition a soldier to do it and he likened this in the book to online communication He's like, when you are in person with somebody face-to-face, it's a lot harder to say those mean, cruel things because your body, your brain, everything is designed to not want to hurt each other. And when you do, you get a visceral reaction. When you've made someone mad, even if it's someone you wanted to get mad, you can feel it in your own body. You can always tell. You can read the signs. He says, when you're online, you're completely shielded from it. People aren't even people. They're just texts on a screen people can just be a a robot for all you know and you can say the most vile most hateful things and the trick to me is to just remove yourself from that anytime a conversation online is getting into something hateful or hurtful you just have to think this isn't a real interaction they're not seeing me as a person and i'm not really seeing them as a person even if i'm trying I'm going to pull back. And when it's those conversations that are in person, like you had with your brother, Candy, those are hard conversations. But he had the opportunity to come back and say he was sorry. He could feel that something was wrong. You had the opportunity to be like, okay, maybe this is going too far. Maybe I don't want to say this next thing. But online, those signals aren't being sent. It's just like attack, 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 attack. Absolutely true. I think, yeah, I agree completely with that. And I think online can be a good space. I think there are a lot of good spaces online and on social media. I, you know, I don't think it's inherently a bad space to be, but I do think the comment section sometimes is an inherently bad space to be. <laughs> My older brother, he moved to a new state and he said, ever since I've been in this state, he's in Minnesota. He's like, I have never been on Facebook. And I don't have any of my Minnesota friends on Facebook. And so I only have these positive relationships because I don't have to see what they're posting, what their politics are. If I, if I want to have that conversation, I can have it in person, but I don't have to see it just like on my wall as I live in my daily life. That's a really, really good point. But we are almost out of time here and I don't want to take up any more of your guys' evening. So we're going to move into round uh, three which is our reflecting on the conversation round. And again, it's like the first round where we each get two minutes to answer one of these questions. And here's the bank of questions that we have. In one sentence, share what was most meaningful or valuable to you in the experience of this living room conversation. What new understanding or common ground did you find within this topic? Has this conversation changed your perception of anyone in this group, including yourself? Name one important thing that was accomplished here. Is there a next step you would like to take based upon the conversation you just had? So for me, I'm going to answer the first question. What was most meaningful or valuable in one sentence? To me, what was most meaningful and valuable was what Dallin was saying about when people are in that state where they're not willing to hear, it doesn't matter what you're giving. It doesn't matter what you're saying. It's kind of a point of no return. And you have to either leave that situation or find a way 
for you and that person to transition into a different state and to be more open and uh, communicative. I like that too. I really thought that was a good insight. Um, I think I'm going to ask the question, name one important thing that was accomplished here. And I really liked um, the fact that there's, you know, there's some generational difference between us. And, and I think there's still a common understanding and a common language. And, and I think that, yeah, there's a, we have different ways of understanding things. Um, but I, I, I was also kind of pleasantly surprised about how much commonality there is. And I think that's important to know, right? There's, there's still a, a lot of commonality between generations. The question I want to answer is, is there a next step you'd like to take based on the conversation we just had? I think the the next step I want to take is to still um, still, uh, you know, connect with my family, be willing to have hard conversations with them, maybe even have some living room conversations with them. Um, and of course, just like you had that experience, Candy, where we put their our feelings, you know, first. And, and I actually had one recently with um, someone in my wife's family where I was able to have a conversation and it got a little heated, but we just ended by, you know, giving hugs and realizing our relationship was most important. And, and also what Stuart said, where we make sure we're on the same plane and talking about that same thing so that we can have a more effective conversation. I really appreciate you guys joining me in this podcast today. It's always great to have these conversations because like you said, Candy, it's the theme of living room conversations. The unofficial theme is like, wow, I was pleasantly surprised by how much we had in common. I see that across the board. It doesn't even really matter what the topic is. People are always like, oh, actually we agree more than we thought we did. And that to me is what the purpose of our organization is, is to show people, hey, we actually agree on a lot more than you think. And those little things that we don't agree on can seem really big, but we can move forward and that's all right. So thank you again to the listeners. If you enjoyed this conversation, the power of living room conversations is that you can have one of your own conversations, this exact topic. You can go on to livingroomconversations.org and you can download the Relationships Over Politics Connecting with Friends and Family Guide, and you can sit down with your friends, with your family, with people in your community, and have this exact conversation. Please donate at our website and consider joining our Patreon. We're working on putting more content up on there and more exclusive things that you can connect with. Because this work of depolarization and connecting people together, it cannot go on without your help. And in an election year, we need as much connectivity and depolarization as possible. I invite you all to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Living Room Convo. And you can go to our Facebook or our YouTube at Living Room Conversations. But until next time, goodbye. <laughs>